Trans health is a growing area in public health. This is largely due to the growing number of individuals who feel comfortable expressing gender identities that do not conform to binary male and female categories. The 2015 summary of the U.S. Transgender Survey reported around 27,000 respondents, over four times as many as the previous 2008-2009 survey. Respondents also reported greater acceptance among family, friends, and colleagues, with over 50% of respondents describing them as supportive. Most notable in the survey was the volume of hardships experienced by transgender community members. Nearly any adverse health outcome or condition is experienced in greater proportion in the transgender community. Harassment and exposure to violence from police or even family, limited access to quality or appropriate medical care, poverty, HIV, and mental health are all areas of greater concern in the transgender community. It is also notable that people of color in the transgender community tend to have a greater proportion of adverse experiences compared to their white counterparts. I'm your host, Kassan Hamra, Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research from those who are deeply involved with this work. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Will Beckham, an assistant scientist in the Department of Health Behavior and Society at Johns Hopkins. Hi, Will. Hi, Hassan. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, as you said, I'm I'm at Hopkins, and soon I will actually be leaving that job to head over to work at the Trevor Project, um, which supports LGBTQ youth mental health. Um, and I'm really excited about that um, to be their director of research projects. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you very much. We re- rarely hear about people leaving the academy, but it does happen. <laughs> it does happen, yeah. <laughs> it does happen. Um, so research into trans health is relatively new, um, regardless of the fact that transgender identity is not. You, know, you and I have talked about how perceived changes in the percent of individuals identifying as trans are purely a result of greater societal acceptance. This, you know, the whole idea of there's something in the water has been pretty well debunked. Mm-hmm. But since you started work in this area, how have you seen the field change? Uh, yeah, I've definitely seen an increasing, there's definitely been a growth of, of trans health research. And um, as you said, the various trans identities and expressions, even if we haven't called them that necessarily, have existed throughout human history. And across cultures, we can see evidence of it, you know, present and past, Um, it really exists. And what's new is, you know, this percentage change in people willing to be open about that and increased awareness and language to label how we feel. Like the word transgender wasn't even used until the 1990s. So when I was a little kid in the 80s, I didn't have words to describe what I was feeling or role models to see in the media to to realize that trans men exist, for example. And non-binary is even a newer label. Um, I think we've had people who would have used that label for themselves much sooner had it been there. Um, So that, that word really hasn't come into use until around 2013. So we are seeing this increase of people um, identifying with those labels and coming out and being more comfortable coming out. So it looks like an explosion of transness, but really it's an explosion of people um, coming out because now they have labels 
and language to, to give to what they're feeling. Um, and, you know, since I've been in trans health, which has just been the past few years after I came out and transitioned myself, um, you know, I've, there, there's, there's been a small increase on awareness and funding, you know, funding is extremely important to do this okay. research. And the, you know, the Institute of Medicine um, put out in 2011, uh, you know, a book uh, uh, about LGBTQ health. And that was really the first time that LGBTQ health as, you know, health of this, this group of populations was really um, at, an, at a national attention at the Institute and at the, you know, the, NI, the, the NIH um, that really funds this kind of research. And transgender people were not considered a health disparity population until you know, the early 2010s. So before that, you had to make a whole case in your, you know, if you're arguing for funding, you had to make a whole case of why this population matters. Right. Um, and now you can just say, okay, this is a health disparity population. We know this already. So we don't have to spend, you know, half of my page on my one pager explaining why you should even care. So that's been helpful for sure over those past, over the past few years to increase um, trans health um, funding and people interested in it. Right. Yeah. So it, it, I, so the way, so if language itself hadn't even existed very clearly until the early 2010s, nor was there any kind of report such as the one you mentioned from the Institute of Medicine, it, it would seem then, and, and I'm a novice, that basically trans health research more or less did not exist before about a decade ago. Is that fairly accurate? Uh, some, things, some things existed. For example, we didn't have the word transgender, but we had other words um, mm -hmm. that, you know, that um, like, you know, language changes rapidly. And in this, in this field, language is, is continuing to change rapidly. Um, with new identities or different um, preferences on how we describe it. So there were things like transsexual, cross-dresser, um, inverts, you know, and there was a lot of conflation with um, sexual orientation. And um, so there were things going on and say in the United States, surgeries for trans people started in about the 1950s, just after World War mm -hmm. World War II, and so there's been you know case reports. There's been a little bit of like um, doctors reporting on, oh, we tried you know cross sex hormones in these people. This is what happened. So um, that sort of thing has existed and been happening. But I think with I think with the use of the word transgender and the the greater awareness, then yes, there has been more of an explosion of um, all the health research, yeah. So, so given those things, Will, how do we advance trans health research and what are the major barriers to this? Because obviously, like you're saying, there were designations and ways of kind of labeling trans identity, but as it has evolved and it continues to evolve, it seems like, it seems like the attention to it alone is a, is a, is a step forward. But what are but there have to be of course more barriers as you said funding is starting to move in the direction that mm -hmm. it needs to to advance trans health but but I'm imagining it's probably not necessarily there yet so what, besides things like funding and you know kind of converging at ways of 
more consistently identifying trans individuals. What are the other things that kind of make it more difficult to study trans health? Yeah, great question. There are there are a lot of barriers. Um, one is, you know, and this is often used as, as an excuse is that trans people are a small percentage of the population. Um, so like in a gen pop survey, for example, general population survey or a national cohort kind of thing, we may be a very small percentage. So there's just not enough data there to really say anything about us. Um, and of course, the percentage of people identifying as trans non-binary is increasing, so that's changing a little bit. Um, but also there's just, there's so many different issues. Say, if you're talking about a rare disease, maybe that rare disease has a smaller percentage of the population that you know suffers from that, but you can focus on that group because that's, that's, the, um, that's the health outcome you're studying. But for trans people, that's not a health outcome, right? That's, that's a population. So there's so many different issues. There's surgeries and hormones, um, but also, you know, infectious diseases um, like HIV and other STDs. There's, um, we're just also just people, right? We also suffer from chronic diseases and cancers and we have reproductive health needs and mental health and quality of life needs. And, and then the whole, you know, social determinants of health, things like education, housing, employment, socioeconomic status. We need research in all of these arenas um, and so, you know, you may have people focusing on, there's a lot of focus on HIV, for example, among trans women right now, um, because they are, a, you know, at hugely high vulnerability of HIV, and that's important research to do, but we also need to be looking at all these other things and to um, find the focus and find the funding and find the expertise to do so is, you know, it's, it's difficult. Um, and also a lot of the research we have um, is cross-sectional um, and not longitudinal. There's not as much longitudinal stuff out and we really need that longitudinal um, over time research to show us you know, what's happening over time. For example, about last week, a new study came out that looked at some children over five years. So they identified as trans at the beginning of that and they, they followed them up and five years later, asked, you know, who is, who of these kids is still identifying as trans and actually 97.5% of them were. Oh, wow. um, and th these are kids that were very young at the beginning, like six to 12. Um, so this idea that it's just a, a trend or a phase or experimentation, um, you know, that study really shows that this is actually a very persistent um, thing and people know their gender identity quite young. Um, so more studies like that, longitudinal outcomes of surgeries, of hormone use. Um, for example, there's, there's not much actual information on, long, on the long-term effects of testosterone on uterine health, for example. Or um, So many trans men or non-binary people on testosterone will eventually get a hysterectomy, but there's not really solid data to show when that should happen, why that should happen, um, what are the different outcomes if you do or don't, you know, we just need more data like that. Um, and because we only have cross-sectional data mostly, we also, you know, we don't have really those long-term outcomes across the life course, you know, we've, from children all the way to elderly trans people, because we certainly have elderly trans people. Um, 
And you know, what are those long-term outcomes on quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I mentioned you know, about the general population surveys. One big, big barrier to trans health research is gender identity is simply not asked on most um, general population, state, national surveys, the census, on big cohorts. It's not asked in most electronic health records at the doctor, at insurance companies, you know, so billing codes and reimbursement and anything like that is often used for data. You can go back and look, you know, how many insurance claims did we have for X? Right. Um, but if you don't have gender identity and you only have sex, you don't know who among that group is trans and who is not. So right. that's just a huge, a huge barrier. Um, and for that data, it, you know, not just gender identity, but sexual orientation as well would be hugely helpful to understanding the health disparities um, of these of LGBTQ populations. Like, um, you know, the example of COVID, for COVID testing and vaccinations, um, you know, we were late in starting to record race and ethnicity, right? But once we started recording it, we realized there were such huge disparities, right? right. Um, not a surprise to anyone that studies race no. and ethnicity as a social determinant of health. Um, and it should have been a given that that was recorded, right? But uh, sexual orientation and gender identity were not recorded. So that would have been a great opportunity to see, you know, how these social determinants of health, how um, different economic status, et cetera, that trans people are experiencing, these health disparities that we are experiencing, how that also impacted, you know, access to testing, access to vaccinations, vaccination rates. Um, so unless people specifically went to collect that from trans people, and I, I have been working on a project that did that, you know, then we don't know the differences. The differences right. are there, we just haven't captured them. Um, so I really encourage, you know, things that aren't even LGBTQ related at all, that are not trans related at all, just, you know, general population things should also ask about gender identity um, so that we can see what the differences are. We can see what the prevalence is. Um, yeah. Right. So it, it seems like more or less historically, you know, I th as, as an epidemiologist, I think to myself immediately, I, I understand the point, especially about the samples, so-called so sample size, right? The number of people mm -hmm. that you can even observe in the trans community and knowing the culture of epidemiology and even just publication generally, when you have n equal or sample size or number of people in a study that's really small the first thing that people will say is well your sample size is too small you can't make any kind of conclusions or assertions or any inference at all which mm -hmm. is which it which begs the question maybe in the future will be but so far has epidemiology even been a viable tool for studying trans health at all mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah, I, I see that problem all the time, or, or even if it is trans-specific, and then you try to divide up by different trans identities, maybe you only have, you know, a small group of trans women, or only small group of non-binary people who are assigned male at birth, or, and, you know, we have to go through these discussions of how to handle that analytically, um, so that we can make inferences, but we're also affirming identities, um, 
and not sort of quote wasting that data you know it is it is research wise unethical to collect data from people and then not use it right, right. like to just say well there out of this group there was only five trans women so we're just gonna like kick them out of table one you know we're just gonna not right. analyze them because we don't know what to do with them is really um unfair and um inappropriate right um yeah so what are kind of the at least so far in in this field what have been or have there even been ways to resolve that that are kind of you know maybe in the future like hopefully as more people feel comfortable identifying and as systems become more and more in place for studying trans health and trans community members the epidemiology kind of numbers side of it will improve but given mm -hmm. the limitations so far what what have been or could have been viable ways to 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 study health issues in the transgender community besides like the 2015 survey is an obvious thing right you get 27,000 respondents you can say something statistically speaking I suppose about about how things are playing out in the population but when you have an example like you give where you have you know five trans women in a study and you say well someone says well oh, it's sample size of five we kick them out what can you do or what could be done or has been done with that kind of that kind of information? Is it is it more like maybe qualitative and quantitative, mm -hmm. like mixed methods approaches? Have those been viable? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, one big approach, like you mentioned, that 2015 trans survey, and that survey will actually be done again this year, um, the 2022 trans survey. So those are hugely helpful to have that, you know, that recenter the population you really want to look at to make sure you are getting that good sample size enough to say something meaningful. And, you know, many, many papers and great information and, and information used for advocacy has come out of that. Um, but when you do have those smaller groups, um, there are approaches to take other than simply leaving them out. Um, so one would be, to go ahead and give the descriptive data of those, you know, of those few people, even if you have to do it separately, even if you cannot make inferences about them, at least give the information so it's there. It raises awareness. It um, could be, you know, later used to prove um, some level of, you know, feasibility of like, yes, they are out there. Yes, there are numbers. Yes, we can recruit them, um, and could could help argue for future funding or advocacy, et cetera. Um, one caution there is you do want to make sure that if you are presenting information on those five women or two women or whatever, you want to make sure it remains um, unidentifiable, um, such that even the own research participants couldn't go back and say, oh, that, that you know, that data is mine or that data was that woman I knew who was in the study, right? Um, so you may have to do that rather than maybe not in a quantitative table presentation, but maybe a paragraph that sort of describes the, the small group that you had in a more qualitative way so that they're included, um, but you're not, you know, outing anyone or, or identifying someone in a research study that that promises to be anonymous, right? Um, and and certainly, qualitative data is is a great 
approach to where you know maybe you only have access to five trans women. So go ahead and do those in-depth interviews with them, you know, really figure out um, what their stories are, what their needs are, um, what disparities they're facing, how their experience with research was, the research um, process. Um, and just get more information that way. But as the, as the National Trans Survey has proven, and as um, the Trevor Project annual surveys with youth over the past few years have proven, you can get you know, thousands and thousands of trans people in a national survey. You, you absolutely can. And so to say there's just not enough of us or it's not worth doing is, is you know, counter to evidence. We have the evidence it can be done. Uh, people want to answer those surveys. Um, yes, there are people who experience research fatigue because they've been asked too much as a minority population, but um, there are definitely people that want to be involved, want our voices heard, want our issues to be counted so that we can, you know, then use that for advocacy, for better health care, um, for better acceptance, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that comes to mind as we're discussing this is that the notion of the general population, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we do epidemiology studies in you know, so-called general populations or we, well, we're never doing it in the general population, let's face it. There's no epidemiology study that really mm -hmm. is general, generalizable to the general population. Every, all of them have some degree of limitation, but the the hope in a lot of studies is to say, well, okay, we're going to sample X amount of people and make broad statements about health issues. Um, sometimes those studies get kind of divided into groups like, you know, cis women, cis men. Um, but my thought here as you're talking about this and in reading the survey is that to what extent is it feasible or even desirable to have transgender individuals in those kind of general population kind of structured studies, because it seems like from the survey that the health issues are so distinct or not distinct, but at least disparate for many of the trans health issues that really is, is the effort or should the effort be on trying to really hone in on research that focuses exclusively on trans health rather than kind of making broader research studies. And I think about something that's kind of obvious, like the COVID pandemic, right? Like mm -hmm. not necessarily how people have responded or handled COVID, but vaccine studies, sure, everybody at this point, we can say everybody should be vaccinated more or less. Like it's, unless you have some kind of serious immune compromised issue, then probably you just need the vaccine and you'll be less likely to get COVID period, end of discussion. But that's like a really an exception to the rule. So, so in, in that way, like what are the real kind of, what, what is the best way to study trans health issues? Or at least, or should we even pull transgender people in these kind of so-called general population groups and make kind of broader statements about health issues in, in that mm -hmm. context? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, <laughs> my neat answer is that it depends. <laughs> That's always the answer for an epidemiologist. It depends on the research question, right? <laughs> um, but so, for example, it can depend, like you made an obvious example of like COVID vaccination rates. We want everyone to get it. So to, to understand, you know, 
um, everyone, like, I think it's definitely still worth, you know, asking gender identity on those that you can look at those social trends and say, we posit that trans people are gonna have a harder time accessing this because they have a harder time accessing healthcare in general. Right. This shows how this disparity worsened right during the pandemic or if you want to understand like national or statewide breast cancer rates for example i'm going to push to put gender identity on there and yeah the vast majority of breast cancer is in cisgender women right, right. but men cis men also get breast cancer and trans women actually also can get breast cancer at, and at higher rates than cis women um, mm -hmm. comparatively so and often that's uh, they're not screened properly they're not paying attention because they're not being educated that they need to right um so like you know trans people are everywhere we are part of the general population we're in the schools we're in the research studies we may be in your research studies and you don't even know it because you didn't ask right, right? um and you know the eligibility criteria may just ask if you're male or female and right right a trans woman would tick female there um mm -hmm. or would say mm, actually this feels like they're not inclusive of someone like me um, because they're not asking also about gender identity and therefore i'm not going to participate at all right. um i've certainly done that myself you know i mm -hmm. i signed up for covid vaccine research studies early in the pandemic and and the screener just asked if i'm male or female and yeah i'm male but like I'm different than other males, you know, right. like bi biologically, right? right? And I, I wanted the COVID vaccine researchers to um, note that, especially since um, there was there were questions if testosterone was a, a risk factor, right, and having worse COVID, or, you know, and was that men were having worse, right, um, outcomes? Was that about a social issue? of men being stubborn and not going to the doctor as much? Is it a masculinity right. issue or is it a hormone issue, right? So that could have been a perfect example. Like trans people could have been a perfect case study there. Here you have people assigned male at birth who are taking estrogen and you have people assigned female at birth who are taking testosterone. Had you included us in those research studies, you could have found out very easily if it's the hormones or not, right? Right. Comparing us to the cis people. Um, That said, um, if you really do want to understand the health disparities of a marginalized, stigmatized population, you're going to have to hone in on that population, right? That's the same with race and ethnicity. It's the same with people with um, disabilities. You know, um, anything, um, any social identity, you're going to have to hone in on that because groups that are marginalized are also going to have a harder time participating in your research studies. So if you give a blanket call to include people, you're mostly going to get cis people. You're mostly right. going to get straight, straight people. You're mostly going to get white people, right? right. Um, and you're just, maybe you try to oversample, uh, you know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, for example, if you want to be able to say something about race versus, um, or you oversample Black people or Latin people, you know, in order to get a, a better sample size. You can do the same with trans people, right? You right. can say, we want a study that includes both cis and trans, but we're going to make sure to oversample 
the trans people such that 50% of our research participants are trans or non-binary and the rest can be cis. So once you hit that sort of quota with cis people, you just stop letting them be eligible until you fill up that, that trans portion. So that's a right. good way to do it. Um, and, um, you know, I, identity is really important and to respect mm -hmm. identity in epidemiological research is really important. And, you know, I've heard people say things like, well, we're doing a study about pregnancy. We'll just lump in the non-binary people and the trans men in with the women um, because it's all the same. They all have uterus, right? right. Um, but so in some ways that is appropriate in that, yes, some trans men and some non-binary people can get pregnant, can breastfeed, need access to abortion, et cetera. Um, but to lump them in as sort of honorary women or just call them women or just call them female for the sake of research is really hurtful um, right. and, and really cuts that identity. Um, similarly, it's been done with trans women, just sort of lumping them in with men who have sex with men in HIV studies or sexual health studies. Because like from a biomedical perspective, some of the risks are the same, um, but those were ignoring their identities. And that really is, you know, re-stigmatizing, re-harming um, their identities. And, you know, research should be affirming and affirmative. And, and there, there are biomedical differences. There are social determinants difference, differences. You know, trans women experience life very differently than men who have sex with men, right? So there are going to be differences there, even if they have elevated HIV risks in common. And those differences really need attention. Um, and, you know, this may get a little too jargony, but I really pay attention to this idea of intersectionality. And I right. think this this idea has sort of leaked a bit more into the general population outside of researchers, but this idea is that people have multiple intersecting identities. You know, um, I'm not just a trans man, I'm also a father and a person who's given birth and white and uh, middle-class and able-bodied. Um, and all those things give me a particular position in society. And um, that's different from other people. And um, the that theory of intersectionality also calls for the centering of those marginalized identities and those marginalized communities. So instead of making the focus or the default, the cis straight white able-bodied man, you know, really recenter that and say, okay, we're gonna look at black cisgender women in this study, or we're gonna look at, you know, Latino men who have sex with men in this study to really understand the needs that are specific to that intersection. Um, and, and we need studies specifically about women because of that too. Women right. having been historically oppressed and marginalized. And we, you know, certainly I almost said we, I, I did live as a woman for, for 38 years. Um, and so identify with women in certain ways, though not as a woman, but, um, you know, having been an oppressed group in society, we also need research that's specifically about women. And um, trans women are women cisgender women are women. For me, that category of woman is an umbrella that includes both cis and trans. So if you're doing research on women, you need to be very specific. It's okay if you need to do research on cis women or research on cis men. You just gotta say that and have a justifiable reason for that, right? right. Um, 
And if you mean people who can get pregnant, then you're gonna have to talk about it a bit differently because some of those people are not women. Um, and some women can't get pregnant for various reasons, um, including them being trans, right? But not that's not the only reason. So, um, I, I know that there are a lot of like um, politics involved and multiple marginalized groups um, all want a seat at the table. And um, there's ways we can do this that's um, cooperative and collaborative and not, you know, not taking from other groups. Sure. I think as, as you know, um, as trans people are saying, hey, we want a seat at the table too. We're not trying to take, you know, um, anything away from women or cis women or from black people or from, you know, like we, we um, again, going back to that intersectionality, we are also the, <laughs> we are also people of color. We are also disabled people. We are also deaf people. We are also et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's really important to pay attention to as well. Absolutely. It seems like it, it, it really kind of just reminds me of just historical challenges in how research agendas are set. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we, we've talked about this, but you know, the fact that people making decisions about how to study breast cancer in black women are mostly white males, mm -hmm. which is just shocking. Mm -hmm. But it seems that, I mean, it seems like the, the trans, it seems like it, trans health is almost poised to more, I would hope, more quickly address that problem because it seems like that while the research agendas have historically been subject to this problem, we've historically seen it and are now talking more about it. So is it, do you see that it's the case that in terms of trans health that people who are trans and trans community members are being more readily integrated into development of research questions, research ideas, and, and just being just integral team members? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point that we are in an era where inclusion is very much a part of the conversation. Yeah. And, um, and as trans health grows, that has been a part of the conversation for sure. Still, most trans health research is and has been done by cisgender clinicians and other researchers who also set the agenda. Um, so there's a lot, there's more like data on like clinical outcomes or surgery, sort of the things that the surgeons themselves want to know, right? Or the people providing hormones themselves want to know on how to treat their patients, which of course is important information. Um, and that's part of what trans people need and want, but it's definitely not um, the forefront in most people, trans people's minds. Um, a whole lot of trans people don't even ever access hormones or surgery. Um, for a variety of reasons, including including not wanting it, but also you know financial logistic. There's a lot of hurdles to jump through. Um, but today, you know, increasingly trans people are speaking up and saying, "Hey, these are these are what we need and what we want." And getting on in research, we have you know community advisory boards. Oftentimes, where if the researchers are not of the population you're trying to study, then you have a board of ten, you know five to 10, 12 people from that community to advise. Um, but and, and those are those are absolutely valuable and necessary. 
um, and a helpful way to help um, guide the research in a way that is more appropriate. But also trans people are not just community or participants or activists, we're also the scientists, the researchers, the providers, the therapists. And, and we are, in, in, myself included, demanding that trans research be trans-led. Um, you know, we get to be the PIs, the principal investigators too. We get to be the co-investigators too, and not just the community advisory board members. And, you know, at the very least, trans people need to be on the team that's defining the research question and designing the research um, as advisors, as scientists, as um, investigators, or at the very least on that sort of community advisory aspect of it. Um, and oftentimes I see it where, and, and this is a partly a reality of the funding structure in, in biomedical research um, is that the, the cisgender researchers will write a grant, eventually get the grant, hopefully. And then once they have the grant, they've already had to define the research questions. They've already had to draft what they're gonna ask about. They've already had to do a ton of the work. And then the community, the funding structure is such that you gotta roll out that survey or roll out that whatever it is very quickly. And that leaves very little time to get, um, that community advisory board in place. And so often it's sort of this um, after the fact thing of getting that community advisory board in place and all they're doing is at best maybe reviewing the language of the survey to make sure there's nothing terribly stigmatizing on it, right? Um, and that is necessary, but it's also not enough, right? And there have been researchers who have tried very hard to um, build relationships over multiple years and multiple grant cycles in order to get those trans voices on the leadership team. Um, whether they're scientists or not, they may be community advocates, but you pull them up, you, you get them in such a position um, that they do have that voice on the, on the research team. Um, and I've, I've seen some researchers do this quite well. And, um, and then also increasingly there are people like me who um, you know, have PhDs and are scientists and are, and are trans and are interested in, in working in trans health. And I'm, I'm definitely not the only one. There's, there's, it's a small number granted, but, but we're out there and we're growing and um, we're seeing more success in being in leadership and getting to set the agenda. Um, that said though, I need to touch back on intersectionality and identity and, and acknowledge that um, people who are able to get to that position, such as me, are more often white, are more often middle class, right? I had the privilege of um, growing up, all the privileges that come with growing up white and middle class in America today, and, and also came out later in life. So, you know, I, um, I've known on some level that I'm that I'm trans since I was three, but but it was sort of just this low level in the closet dysphoria thing going on, and that certainly affected who I am and how I grew up. But I didn't face the the heavy stigma and discrimination and bullying and getting kicked out of my home and you know other things. Um, so we also need to be very um, mindful of the fact that within the trans community, we have to pay attention to intersectionality and things like race and socioeconomic status. And the most 
um, marginalized trans people are black and brown trans women. Um, and the most privileged trans people tend to be white trans masculine people like myself. And, um, and realize that we're not all the same, we're not a monolith and that people like me need to use our power, our voice, our position to uplift the voices of the others whose voices didn't get so far or won't get onto a, uh, onto a podcast or won't get onto you know, um, the investigative team of a trans health research project. Um, and often it's those trans women who are um, most sought after for their activist roles or their community advisory board roles. And um, I think that's appropriate um, as long as they are compensated fairly and you know, pay trans people for the research, you know, pay trainers to come train your team on, on appropriate data collection. Um, rather than asking for their free labor to advise your project, you know, like realizing that it's gonna be hard to get black trans women on your community advisory board because a lot of them are just trying to survive and maybe on the streets or are um, busy saving their sisters um, once they got up on their feet and, and don't have time for just another research project. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of um, power dynamics there and, you know, all the other health disparities and, and social disparities we see in America along the lines of race and ethnicity, et cetera, are, are very much there in the community as well. And we have to work to fix that also. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we're running, unfortunately, we're somewhat low on time today. <laughs> yeah. I, one of the things I wanted to, to touch on, which um, you, you, started, you started to mention a moment ago, was about, about transgender youth. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that strikes me is, you know, your narrative, for example, as a youth who kind of knew a long time early on, that there was something there mm -hmm. and how there are so many like like you out there but there's also you know some i would hope some level of societal acceptance that's increasing and becoming more supportive but so so in this in this kind of area of transgender youth do we know or have have we seen kind of like general more accepting um culture for for those who come out or maybe transition earlier in life yeah um unfortunately i think we are sort of seeing two americas here mm -hmm. we're seeing more acceptance in blue states right. um and blue cities um where it, it somehow has become a politicalized issue especially mm -hmm. around trans youth and trans youth are really the issue of trans youth um, and transition has really become weaponized lately and a political battle, um, which is really, really unfortunate. And um, so in some places and over the past few years, very happily, we are seeing more awareness, more acceptance, more access to uh, social transition. And by that, I mean just parents accepting that their child wants to go by a different name and maybe a different hairstyle and different clothing, right? Um, that's what this, that's what pre-pubescent pre, pre youth are doing. It's just a simple change of name and hairstyle, really. Um, not even a legal 
things, just what you call them, right? Um, and and that's wonderful, you know, to to think that more youth are having accepting parents and friends and and neighbors and schools that you know I wish I could have been Will when I was little, <laughs> you know, um, and those youth will have much, much better quality of life and be able to hopefully achieve, you know, their goals and self-actualization at much younger ages because they can be themselves. Um, and that's wonderful. At the same time, we are seeing this vast, harsh backlash um, due to fear, fear-mongering, misinformation, disinformation, um, this call for, you know, saving the children in a way that is actually just placing them in harm and states banning, um, you know, puberty blockers for teenage um, trans kids, which is very dangerous, frankly. Um, and, you know, they think, they think they're helping children by doing this, but the way I've been putting it to explaining it to people lately is, to deny a trans boy who's 11, 12, starting to go through puberty, to deny a trans boy puberty blockers is to force him to grow breasts and have a period. You're forcing right. boys to, to have a period and, and grow breasts and, and get curvy bodies, right? And you're forcing trans girls to grow facial hair and their voices to get deeper and then to grow up you know, to six feet tall or whatever it is that their natural body wants to do. Um, and when you think of it that way, it's it's really quite <laughs> it's really quite distressing and horrific. Mm -hmm. And puberty is one of the key times where trans kids go through a lot of distress because they're going through the wrong puberty. And um, it was certainly distressing for me. I didn't want any of those bodily changes. And you know, I can hear people say, "Oh, no one likes puberty," but like, yeah, puberty's rough. But like all the girls I knew really looked forward to those changes uh, on their bodies, right? They looked forward to being right. curvy and, and attractive. And for me, I was a nightmare. I was mortified. Right. Um, and um, thankfully we are seeing, you know, backlash to the backlash of, you know, suing the states that have blocked hormone blockers such as Alabama, um, um, fighting against Texas, this sort of thing that um, that is hopefully getting these social and medical decisions back into the hands of the doctors and their parents and the kids who need right. them, right? And um, one thing that the, the Trevor Project does that really attracted me to want to go over to them is this annual youth survey that they do. And they they, you know, surveyed 35,000 LGBTQ youth every year and um, a good chunk of those are trans or non-binary and put out really solid data that can be used to advocate for these things. You know, it can show 40, 50% 40, of, of trans youth have contemplated suicide. But if you support those youth, if the parents are supportive, if they have at least one supportive loving adult say, hey, I believe you, I see you, um, you are what you say you are, that rate goes down so far. You know, it is literally a life-saving intervention to accept right. trans youth for who they are. 
and right. to believe them. And um, and the Trevor Project is really good about using those numbers. You know, they 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 publish them in peer-reviewed literature, um, but also use them more directly for advocacy and get those numbers out quickly to um, policymakers and therapists and other advocates that can use them. And um, that's that's extremely important and it's something I'm very passionate about is making sure that the research we are doing as epidemiolo epidemiologists has an impact. You know, somebody's got to be able to use that data to create an intervention or to guide their program to serve the people who need it. Um, and that's what I'm excited about going to the Trevor Project to, you know, to do is really um, produce that data and see it used directly in advocacy. Absolutely. So I'll ask one more question because you've been gracious with your time today. <laughs> um, so in terms of that greater societal acceptance, right? How do we have, how, or do we know anything about how we have greater societal acceptance, how we have more of those family members that say, I see you, I support you, I am here for you, because that is an area where I think we probably don't know a lot. Like we see secular trends, I guess, over time, right? Like greater mm -hmm. acceptance is happening. We don't know what are the drivers of societal acceptance. At least I don't think we know. Um, but it, it, and I can I think back to this one study, which was unfortunately debunked, but it struck me as compelling was that LaFleur study or LaCour study where they said that you could change people's attitudes about, about gay individuals by just introducing them to gay individuals and, and making, making connections on a personal level. Like, is there any kind of research in that, in that arena to say like, this could, this could change how people view transgender people other than just kind of saying like, we have secular trends and trans mm -hmm. just transgender uh, acceptance is greater now than it was X amount of years ago. Like, can we, do we know how we could accelerate that or, or anything like that? Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, I am familiar with that study that unfortunately was fraudulent, <laughs> right. but it was, it was based on that underlying theory of exposure, right? Exposure right. leading to awareness. And I, I am not familiar with any further studies that have really shown that that, how that works or th that it works. Um, given that some parents whose kids come out are accepted and some are rejected and some are maybe rejected at first but then later accepted um, tells me that exposure alone is not the thing, right? Exposure is right. part of it, but there has to be some other factor there that makes um, some parents come around and some parents never come around, right? Um, and I've experienced both of those things in my life and relationships. and. Um, I think there are those broader, you know, those broader secular trends that I could, I'm totally just hypothesizing here, but like, um, I'm sure there's an expert on this that's written a couple books, and, but um, the, the women's movement, you know, of, of the 70s, the women liberation movement, I think did a huge favor to trans people in that they introduced this concept of gender separate from sex. Mm -hmm. 
so that we can talk about the social side of things. And if it's social, it's changeable, right? right. It is not immutable. Um, and, and we have seen um, things change quite a lot since then, right? Um, they did um, quite a lot for women's liberation, but also shifting shifting gender gender in general. Um, you know, we have it, it shifted men's lives and women's lives, and it also opened up the possibility to talk about gender identity and gender identity in new ways, and how that in turn is different than social. Um, social gender expression, gender roles, gender expectations that the women's movement was really talking about. And um, certainly we can see gener generationally um, greater acceptance in the younger generations as we go. So absolutely, there are grandparents and baby boomers out there that have accepted their trans kids and grandkids. But, but you know, on a population level, these younger generations, Gen Z, like my son's generation, are far more accepting. Um, and probably partly that is due to exposure somewhat. And not just exposure to trans people, but like I've talked to my son since he was a little guy, long before I ever came out, you know, about LGBTQ issues. The first protest he ever remembers to going to that I took him to, he was six or seven, and we were protesting Proposition 8 in California. Um, and, you know, explaining in an age appropriate way what gay marriage is and right. why we are, why we think it's bad, that Prop 8 is bad. And, you know, he, he decided what he wanted to put on his sign. And it was um, on one side, he wanted um, be nice to gay people. And on the other side, let them get married. You know, it was a very right. age appropriate, simple message. And, and when I told him that some people don't want gay people to get married simply because they're gay, he was horrified. Right. He said, why? Why right. would you not want people who love each other to get married? And, you know, I think just overall, we've been teaching, you know, the women who were the women in the women's live movement in the 70s, now their grandkids are, you know, um, just much more aware and open about gender. And right. sexuality, right? And um, yeah, I, if we could create the ideal intervention to magically make everyone, you know, LGBTQ friendly, that would be wonderful. But I, right. or to be anti-racist, that would be wonderful, you know. And I think it it takes it it takes multi-component. It takes social change. It takes policy change. It takes um, time. And all those things combined, I, I see us on a positive trajectory. Yes, we have backlash, um, but overall, I do I do see us on a positive trajectory. And um, we ending on a on a nice note. Um, I am I'm getting married next week. Oh, congrats! Actually. Yeah, I um, when I came out and transitioned, um, I divorced. Um, you know, I was I was in a cis straight marriage and mm -hmm. that wasn't going to work um for him and so you know that was a, a a very big deal of course um but i'm getting married next week to another trans man and um just really celebrating the fact that we can get married right is a very new thing you know um only in 2015 what did it become legal federally and to um 
and the fact that we could both transition and find each other and fall in love is just the most beautiful thing. And we are really using the wedding as an opportunity to get a little political and highlight those facts that uh, queer trans love is uh, transformative and pure and wonderful and also under threat. Right. Um, and, you know, we really are cognizant of the fact that a lot of the uh, policymakers are throwing trans youth under the bus to get their own votes in the primaries and to try to win constituents. And that's really um, disgusting. And absolutely. And to take this Pride Month, the first Pride Month since you know we've had Pride celebrations shut down because of the pandemic, and to have this year be not only Pride Month but the the month of of my my new marriage is um, just really thrilling and and wonderful, and I'm I'm really happy about that. Well, I I definitely appreciate ending on a positive note, <laughs> and <laughs> congratulations on all the life changes, the wedding, the new job. All those things sound great. Thank you. And before we uh, before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held in 2023 in Portland, Oregon, assuming no pandemic setbacks. Membership also gets you access to the SCR library which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. Also a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the host and any of the guests are our views and our views alone, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks.